Alan Martino is a tenure-track instructor in Community Rehabilitation and Disability Studies in the Community Health Sciences Department at the University of Calgary. His main research interests are in critical disability studies, gender and sexuality, feminist and critical disability studies, and qualitative and community-based research. His doctoral research examines the romantic and sexual lives of adults with intellectual disabilities in Ontario, in Canada, by putting into conversation theories from both the sociology of sexualities as well as the field of critical disability studies. Welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you today and I'm very excited uh, to be speaking with you. So before we get into the episode itself, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, about your academic background and about your interest um, in disability studies as an area of research? Yes, absolutely. Uh, first of all, thank you for so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. I am a sociologist by training who has always been invested in bringing the sociology of gender and sexualities and put them into conversation with critical disability studies. So my work has really been at this intersection, primarily looking at the sexual and romantic lives of people labeled with intellectual disabilities and here in Canada. So I've had the opportunity to talk to family members, support workers, agencies, but also, and most importantly, people with intellectual disabilities themselves to understand what are some of their experiences, their challenges, their desires, their dreams. Uh, and I've you know, been able to hear really in interesting stories and experiences along the way. Right. And I think this is a pretty interesting area of research because there are a lot of um, myths and misconceptions, I think, you know, are... Um, around people with disabilities and their sexualities and the way that they sort of navigate the area of dating and romance, right? Uh, so can you just, um, you know, start off with telling us a little bit about some common myths or misconceptions perhaps and, uh, and how your research essentially explores these? Yeah, unfortunately, there are still so many uh, myths and stereotypes about people with disabilities and their sexualities. So, for example, with people labeled with intellectual disabilities, there's often this notion that people don't have sexual desires or romantic dreams or that, you know, in ways that desexualize them, right? Or sometimes infantilize people with disabilities, right? This notion that despite them being adults, uh, we shouldn't be giving them the opportunities to have these experiences or that they won't make good decisions, right? There's a lot of uh, sense that if we allow people to have those experiences or make those choices, they will make, in quotes, bad decisions. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the things that is very important is that if we look at our experiences with romance and intimacy, we learn a lot by making mistakes. We learn a lot on the go as we engage in relationships, right? That's how we learn. And I just had this conversation with a colleague that was saying that sometimes we're expected even to make mistakes and learn, right, in relationships. But this expectation sometimes doesn't really apply to people with intellectual disabilities. So one of the first things that I try to do is show, highlight to family members, support workers, and agencies that we need to talk about this, that this is an, also an important topic just like we talk very comfortably about employment and education and rights, sexual rights and sexual opportunities are equally important in our lives. 
Absolutely right. And I think, you know, something else that's quite interesting is that if you look um, at disability itself, it's a pretty, you know, like a heterogeneous sort of area. So I think I'd like to know a little bit about how these stereotypes apply specifically to different uh, types or, you know, forms of like disabilities in, in that sense. Yes, that's a very good question. So one of the reasons why I tend to focus more on the experience of people labeled with intellectual disabilities is that um, when we think about sexual rights of people with disabilities, people with intellectual disabilities are sometimes seen and talked about as exceptions to that right. This comes from notions of consent, notions of ability, intellectual ability. So it's almost like we suggest that, you know, people with disabilities should have sexual rights protected, except people with intellectual disabilities who may be too vulnerable to make decisions and participating in intimate life, or that they might make decisions that put other people in danger. And that's a very interesting contradiction or tension that I see often, where people with intellectual disabilities, they're seen either as potential victims and vulnerable, or on the other end, end of the, you know, the spectrum, seen as a potential danger to the community, right? Because they cannot make good decisions. The problem is that I've seen over and over again through interviews and work in the community is that no matter where people end up, you know, in this, um, they, their rights to reproductive choices, to sexuality, intimacy, relationships are often denied. I've spoken, for example, with adults with intellectual disabilities, people who are in their 20s and 30s who had been told by either family members or people in their providing care to them that they should wait until their 50s and 60s even sometimes to then consider having a romantic relationship, right? So we're holding people, you know, with intellectual disabilities, especially in this constant, you know, state of adolescence, right? Like we treat people, despite them being adults, we're treating them still as, as adolescents, we're still telling people that they should prioritize other parts of life, like employment, education, or homework, even, as one participant told me. So I think intellectual disabilities uh, are it's particularly important, you know, um, specialization to look at because it raises different questions around ability to consent and participate in real life, right? It definitely does. Something else that's important is that oftentimes our self-perception is influenced a lot by the people who we are surrounded with and you know and like what we see in that sense right and i think um, along those lines i just like to know a little bit about how stereotypes that we sort of subject can sort of influence you know like their you know, like self-perception and their ironic like actions and, and behavior accordingly yes um growing up with this stereotypes that are reinforced constantly right it really shapes how people feel about themselves so for example i've spoken with participants who then take on themselves to say that I'm not ready for relationships, right? And then when I ask them, like, what makes you feel that way? Uh, then they probably usually cite you know, family members or people who have told them that they are not ready. I've also have participants that, you know, grew up with negative messages around disability, where it's only seen as a negative part of life, right? Um, there's no benefit, there's nothing positive about it. And for that reason, they often talked about having low self-confidence, low self-esteem. And I mean, it shouldn't be surprising, right? Even when we look at representations of intellectual disability in the media, it's often done in very infantilizing, desexualizing ways, right? So growing up with those messages and constantly being reinforced, I think really shapes with how they see themselves, their opportunities, their possibilities. Um, one thing that I observe too is the lack of intersectional 
uh, understanding here, right? So we have this assumption that people with intellectual disabilities cannot identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, for example, right? Uh, and that's a very significant gap because we're not giving people the vocabulary to speak about how they feel about themselves, right? To explore possibilities. Uh, I spoke one with one particular uh, participant who really summarized this well, as he said, it's like going to McDonald's and the only thing on the menu is McChicken. Of course, you're going to pick McChicken. But if you had a menu of options and a language, right, to articulate that, maybe you might want to try the cheeseburger once in a while. And it might not be for you, but you might want to try it. So I think that a lot of people are growing up with very limited ideas about sexuality too. Uh, that sexuality is always heterosexual, that sexuality does not involve sex, that it only involves holding hands at the maximum, right? So they're growing up with very limited menu of options. And what I would like to see is a much richer you know, menu here because we all know that sexuality is much more than just heterosexual sex or anything like that, right? It's about cuddling, it's about intimacy, it's about getting to know each other, it's about hooking up on a Friday night. You know, it's a lot more than that. Definitely, right? And I think, you know, um, yeah, I think, you know, something that sort of struck a chord with me is that you mentioned that, you know, they're treated a lot like, like adolescents, right? And, you know, adolescents are often told you have to be in control and, and like, you know, of like associated things. You know, I'd like to go back to like the metaphor of the menu that you use. And, you know, I think in that sense, right, like, how do we really get to telling the community itself about the kind of options that they have available about the kind of things that they can do? Because I think even when we look at, you know, people who are growing up, who are mainstream, who are non-disabled in that sense, I think even then there are, you know, a lot of, you know, of like these, you know, like restrictions and, and you know, and norms and codes that are imposed mm -hmm. upon them, right? So how does being a disabled person um, further, you know, like complicate the process? Yeah, that's an amazing question. I think three things that come to mind. Uh, the first one is that we need to increase the level of community participation of people with disabilities, right? We need to, for example, make queer spaces more accessible and more welcoming to people with intellectual disabilities. Often when I interview my participants and ask this question about how they felt about queer spaces, that often felt as a welcoming space. It felt really overwhelming, a place where they didn't feel welcome and, you know, people didn't make an effort. So I think, for example, queer communities need to make an effort to reach out to disability communities and disabled people in the community and go above and beyond to make sure that those spaces, you know, make sense to people. So that's one piece. I think we also need to provide better sex education to people. I think everyone benefits with more information. Uh, I think and evidence-based information, especially. And you know, sex education that is not focused on infantilizing, desexualized information, but that really provides that rich menu of options, right? For example, by looking at sexuality as much more complex and much broader, right? To include sexual identities, include gender identities. So being able to give that information to people so they can have a broader menu and have the vocabulary to articulate what they're feeling, I think that's already something important. And the last thing I'll say is giving people the room to make mistakes. I mean, how many of us, you know, listening here look back and say, wow, I dated Johnny for two years. That was such a bad choice. But nobody comes to us and says, you know, you made a bad choice. So that means you should not be allowed to have relationships or that you should have a staff member with you all the time to make sure you don't repeat that. No, the way we treat that is like we laugh at it most of the time and we just move on, right? And then we go to, into other relationships and we take those lessons. 
But what I learned through, uh, you know, interviews with people with intellectual disabilities is that often when someone makes a mistake in quotes in their intimate lives, they get punished severely, right? To the point that they're not allowed to have more relationships or they become very surveilled and controlled. So the room to make mistakes, I think, is very small for people with intellectual disabilities sometimes. But that's the problem because we learn by doing a lot of times, right? So I would hope that people with intellectual disabilities uh, have the supports, right? So we are here available, but they have the opportunity to go out, try and make mistakes sometimes too, right? Definitely, right. And, you know, I think, um, and of course, you know, I think that doing interviews itself, I think gives you a very different perspective as opposed to if you were, you know, looking at literature and doing reading, right? And I think along those lines, it just like, you know, a little bit as to how the literature review process was different from a lot of your findings on the field and as to whether there was any overlap in both of these and like what it, you know, like taught you overall over the course of your research as well. Yes, uh, you know, you always get unexpected, you know, ways and paths when you start doing the research. For me, it was, like you said, it was extremely important to think about nothing about us without us and really be able to include the voices of people with intellectual disabilities. I mean, that's, it's their lives, right? Just they are the ones with the lived experiences and the knowledge. So for me, it was extremely important to have that voice. Of course, this is not to say that other people are not important. So hearing from family members, hearing from other people that are providing care is also important. But for me, the most important voice still is those of people with intellectual disabilities. And as I started doing these interviews, I learned you know, a lot. And one of the things that I think is kind of heartbreaking sometimes is to see that some things don't change. You know, like when we look at the history, for example, of eugenics in Canada and other countries, where we've con contained the sexualities of people with disabilities, we still see those you know, forms of containing their sexualities, perhaps just in different ways. So for example, one of the things that I still see very often in my field work is people with intellectual disabilities who don't have control over their living space. Like for example, they cannot lock their bedroom doors, their rooms always have a single bed, you know, they cannot bring overnight people, or even one participant, for example, that had a curfew, right? And he could not come back after 9 p.m. I mean, that's 9 p.m. is, you know, usually the time where you're going out to meet your friends, right? And you're getting ready to go out and meet people. So all those things that come together and prevent people from having those experiences, right? So it's very structural ways that we're still preventing people from forming intimate relationships. And we need to understand what is happening here and how do we change this? Right. You know, I think whenever we try and whenever we start addressing change, right, we typically think of the movements and a lot of the revolutions that have sort of come into place. And I think along that, you know, like along those lines, you know, like the, like the disability movement that's been there in place, I think it's, it's sort of been quite a milestone, right? But then I think on the other hand, I'd like to know as to what the successes of the movement have been, what the challenges of the movement have been and how exactly it's, you know, um, yeah, I just like know, you know, like a bit more about the movement itself and like how it addresses a lot of the challenges that have been brought up. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, and it's amazing. I think the disability rights movements across uh, have really changed how they think about gender and issues of sexuality, right? From not speaking as much about it or not seeing it as a priority to now creating such a body of literature and activist work. I mean, I just recently wrote a book chapter on LGBT disabled people who are doing amazing work. They're using online spaces, especially from YouTube to blogs, right? 
this online community is to share their experiences of what it was like to grow up, you know, occupying disabled and sexual identities. Uh, what are some of the challenges they had, but also providing almost like mentorship to new generations of activists and people with disabilities. And I think that's a very amazing contribution because it really comes from the community, right? It's disabled people themselves creating this amazing, rich, you know, um, discourse and material that people can use, right? And we do see some positive changes. I mean, look at, for example, the Netflix show special, right? The story of a queer disabled man, like entering one of the main mainstream services in the world. I mean, that's fantastic, right? Of course, we can always critique the limitations of representation, and that's important. But I think we cannot underestimate also the power of having that body, that character, that person, that actor represented. I mean, I have so many people that have never thought about disability studies or this intersection of disability and sexuality, but they know the show, right? And they tell me about how they love the show and they watch every episode and they're in the second season. To me, that pushes the envelope. It pushes how non-disabled people might suddenly be like, oh, so disabled people do have you know, sexual desires that can be you know, gay or bi bisexual or lesbian. You know? So to me, that is a positive sign. Uh, and the best thing is that it's coming from disabled people themselves. Certainly, right. And, you know, I think a lot of, um, you know, experts in the field, a lot of, you know, of like these scholars you see, I think I've sort of looked at the intersectionality of, of, you know, like the area itself, you know, because both of these movements, right, if you look at, you know, like in general, right, I think both of these movements have sort of come like a pretty long way, but they've often been seen to be very independent of each other, right? And I think, you know, in that sense, mm -hmm. to sort of have them coming together, you know, I think, as you mentioned, is a pretty big milestone. But then I think, you know, as you also mentioned, because it's such a ground up effort, can you tell us a little bit as to whether there have been any laws and policies that especially address this intersectionality and how exactly that has worked out? Yeah, and I think you hint to a very important gap too, right? Like the challenge around social movements. So for example, when we think about, you know, queer social movements or LGBT, and who gets to represent those social movements, right? You usually don't see disabled minds and bodies, right? <laughs> Represented or at the forefront, right? We're still not thinking sometimes about queer spaces and making them accessible, not just physically, but even emotionally. How do you make these places welcoming to disabled people, right? Or for example, right now, I'm starting a project on what women with intellectual disabilities think about feminism and do they see themselves as feminists, you know? at least my preliminary research on this, uh, very preliminary, but what it seems to suggest is that a lot of women with intellectual disabilities do not see themselves as feminists. Uh, and there's something very interesting there, right? That there is a disjuncture perhaps of how do they feel about themselves? Do they feel their needs and experiences spoken about in mainstream feminism, right? So those are very important questions that I think we still need to really bring those movements much better interconnected and create those dialogues. And that's what I hope to do in my work as well. Uh, but even in terms of policy, right? I think we need to really rethink policies that prevent people from having the lives they want. So for example, I remember one particular province in, in Canada, one of the policies is that if someone with an intellectual disability gets married, uh, their funding will be decreased significantly or even can be fully removed. To me, that's a really, it sends a strong message that if, you know, if you get married, there is a disincentive, right? Because you're going to lose the very little funding that you get to make a living and to have a decent life. So to me, like that's a serious policy that needs to be addressed, right? We should not be discouraging that. 
Or another policy that I find it very interesting too here in Canada, uh, in one of the provinces is that um, support workers paid by the government, uh, they can support the mother with an intellectual disability, but they're not allowed to care for the child at all, right? So we're thinking about disability and disability services in an individual way. It's only the person with a disability instead of thinking about supports as a family, right? So we're still not thinking about people with disabilities as sexual, as potential parents and supporting them with being the good parents that they want to be and can be, right? So I think those limiting ways of thinking about disability need to change from a policy level as well. Absolutely, right. And, you know, I think um, over the course of your publication as well, uh, you mentioned the term intimate citizenship. So I'd just like to know a little bit as to, you know, like what this means. And I just like to know about like the word itself. Yeah. Yes. What I like about this word by Ken Plummer, uh, intimate citizenship, is that it puts our intimate lives in the same level as our public lives. Right. Like we, when we think about employment and education, it's so easy to connect that with rights. Uh, but when we think about sexuality or intimate lives, we don't think about rights the same way, right? Especially, be, you know, because of some privileges that we have. We think that it, you know, it's just so taken for granted that you can step into a club and dance and spend the night and that's it. But for some people, it involves a lot more. It involves access to transportation, access to, you know, economic means to access that space and have a date. Uh, so I think intimate citizenship, which is really about our rights to have sexual identities, have control over our bodies, over our choices. These are things that are extremely taken for granted when we think about people with disabilities. For one example I can give you is women with intellectual disabilities that are often in, on, you know, on the pill or in forms of birth control, sometimes even without their knowledge. You know, people might just say, just take this pill or take this shot and that's it, without telling them that there are potential side effects. What does it actually mean? So for me, intimate citizenship is about making sure that people have the information they need, right? Uh, that they have access to information, to knowledge, but most importantly, that they have the rights respected. In, as you're talking about policy, it's interesting, right? The sexual rights of people with disabilities is recognized by the UN, right? The United Nations Convention. But unfortunately, what I've seen often on and on in my interviews is that those rights don't translate to practice. A lot of people still are not having those rights respected on the ground, right? So we need to think about like, how do we move beyond just rights on the piece of paper and actually change the way we do things and support people in the community? Definitely, right. And you know, I think um, something else that's important, right, whenever we discuss the area of of like disability itself is that you know it's important to look at it through the social model you know as in we have you know a lot of these structures which are made inherently inaccessible right rather than looking at it mm -hmm. as you know you know in like the medical you know like sort of sense right and i think along that lines you know i um i just like know a little bit as to how the social model can be applied when we're looking at a field like dating and intimacy right because you know a lot of the you know like current resources we have you know like if you look at um at like a dating app like tinder or if you look at you know a bar or a club you know like where you would meet somebody a lot of these are very um not just heterosexual but very ableist spaces as well right so you know like how do you think you know like these spaces specifically can be amended and changed and made more inclusive per se Yes, I think, you know, the social model was indeed a very interesting, important contribution of disability studies scholarship, right? I think one of the examples that comes to mind immediately is this notion of vulnerability, 
right? With people with intellectual disabilities, we often say that people are vulnerable and we focus a lot on assessing their knowledge, assessing the individual, right? Their ability to make choices, their ability to go about dating. But what I, what I try to do with family members and support workers usually is to flip that a little bit. It's about how do we make people with intellectual disabilities more vulnerable? We make people more vulnerable and there's literature on this, right? We make them more vulnerable by not giving them education and information about sex, right? If people don't have the knowledge to, or the vocabulary to speak about forms of abuse, for example, how do you expect people to report abuse, right? Or for example, if we remove so often people's decision-making, right, opportunities, like I spoke with people who cannot even choose what they're gonna eat during the day, right, or where they're gonna go, what activities they will do. That removes people's opportunities to practice decision-making, right, to practice those things. How do we expect people to make good choices about who they're dating or where do they go to find a date, right? Like how do, so I think that there are multiple ways that we are making people more vulnerable, but we missed out on those structural ways, right? That's kind of more social model approach to it. If we focus only on individuals and people's capacity, right, to make choices. So I think that's a great example to show how the social model is a very good contribution, even for thinking about intimate lives. Certainly, right. And, you know, I think something else that is, is sort of like a theme that sort of, uh, you know, like over the course of a conversation is that we do understand that while there definitely should be a certain degree of independence and freedom, I think there also is inherent level of, you know, of like surveillance that a lot of, you know, like family members and friends have because, you know, like concerned about like the well-being of like, you know, of like, you know, like a disabled friend or family member. So I think, um, you know, I'd just like to know as to whether we can really strike this balance between, you know, concern and independence and how exactly, you know, like a healthy stuff, like a means of that would sort of work out and what that would look like. Yeah, that's the $1,000 question, right? Like, how do we strike that balance of, you know, because, I mean, I, I give credits to family members, right, who do care about their loved ones and want to make sure that they're protected. I myself have a sibling with a disability who I care so much about, and I want to make sure that he's safe, right, as he's participating in those activities and things in life. Um, and indeed, let's give them a credit too, because if we look at the data, we show it, data suggests that people with intellectual disabilities and people with disabilities in general are much more likely to experience forms of abuse in their lives in comparison with non-disabled people, right? So there is evidence of this vulnerability in some ways. The challenge is, is that vulnerability and, you know, this concern should not trump people's rights uh, to have an intimate life, right? And it shouldn't, and though more care is needed, right? And more accessible information is needed, more work is needed. I think that we should still allow people to make choices and still have those experiences that they want to have. And of course, those, those choices look very different for people. I spoke with people that they simply just want to be able to cuddle with their partners. And that's it. Like, that's what love and intimacy means to them. And I also spoke with participants who are like, I just want to get, you know, laid and have hookups every weekend. And that's what they want. So it's also about understanding what love and intimacy means to each person. What do they want for their lives? We need to create more spaces where we actually ask those questions. And we ask those questions in a place that is safe for, for people, right? So that is non-judgmental, that is not negative, right? But it's more strength-based that we're thinking about what they can do instead of what they cannot do or what they're too vulnerable to do. Of course, in some cases, right, some people might require a little bit more support. 
but that's where we need to do this teamwork, right? Working with family members, including siblings, right? Who might be closer age, might feel more comfortable with sexuality. We know that, for example, I'm not comfortable talking about my sex life with my parents. They're probably not my best choice, you know? But my sibling, right? I would feel much more comfortable talking to him about sex and my sex life, right? So counting on these allies. Also, there are people with intellectual disabilities in the community who are doing self-advocacy work, right? So again, I think there are opportunities to engage with the disabled community themselves, you know, and really engage those. Like they have lived experiences as well. They can share knowledge. They can share opportunities and resources. Uh, so I think all this partnership would be the best way to go to find a better balance. Yeah, you know, I, I hope sincerely that we're getting there and we're in that direction, right? I mean, of course, there still is a long way to go, but I think, you know, to be able to articulate it, I think is definitely, you know, like a success there. But, you know, I think um, on the other hand, right, like I think especially when you look at, you know, at the at like that intersection of being both a queer person and, you know, and like a disabled person as well, I think that, you know, um, there is a lot of stigma attached to both these labels, even independently, right? So I think in that mm -hmm. sense, you know, when you are sort of, you know, able to like reclaim your identity you know as like a disabled person or as a queer person or you know like come out of the closet in that sense I'd just like to know as to over history like what have the milestones sort of been that have you know allowed people to do this you know like either in terms of like movements or like certain things that have you know like sort of happened that have allowed us to you know, like come to like where we are today and like what the future might look like as well yeah, this is also very interesting, right? Because we see, for example, queer movements really getting a lot of attention, you know, and advancement in terms of policy, even like the right to get married in some contexts, right? So I think these are big achievements that have happened. The reclaiming of the word queer, which I use myself, right? We see some similar kind of movements, right, in disability, you know, circles. So, for example, the reclaiming of the word crip right? That's another word that has been really used in demeaning ways in the past, but some people are trying to reclaim that. Uh, one of the examples I would give is Andrew Gerza, right, who has a podcast called Disability After Dark and talks about disability and sexuality, and he tries to reclaim this word crip. I think that it's not as well known, <laughs> you know, disability activism. Uh, I remember reading one piece that says something like disability activism, why is it not as sexy as queer activism? <laughs> you, know? you know, so I think that we still have so much, so many strong ideas about disability. They're very limited, very medicalized, very PD, very negative ways of thinking about disability that kind of keeps us away, right? Like queerness now, we don't look at a queer person and be like, oh, poor you, right? Let me give you this you know, medication. Let me, you know, we don't think about queerness the same way that we still think about disability in a very limited and medicalized way, right? In a lens of cure and in rehabilitation all the time. So I think it's unfortunate that that's how it's unfolding. But again, I do see some positive strides where we see people with intellect with disabilities more generally using all the spaces they have, like from podcasts to blog posts and websites. They're using the resources they have at hand to try and change the language around disability, right? And try to bring that to the forefront and seeing movies and shows talking about it, right? Like even, I think it was called The Surrogate, you know, that movie about a man who requires services, right? I mean, these are movies that are slowly trying to change things. I think it's going to take a lot more time and a lot more work on, on our end here. And especially around 
intellectual disabilities, right? We need to change representations of intellectual disabilities. We often see more people with physical impairments in the, in the media. How do we change that? How do we change representations of whiteness, right? Like we have been critiquing ourselves as a disability studies scholarship, right? We need to be intersectional. We need to have representations beyond whiteness, beyond global north. Like how, when, you know, when is it, are we going to engage with these scholars and activists in the global south who are also engaged in these conversations, right? But that may have very different, you know, political scene, a very, when we think about rights, not every country has, you know, uh, LGBT or gay marriage, for example, right? Some countries are still striving to have the very basic right. Uh, so how do we negotiate and how do we collaborate with scholars in the global south and other parts of the world so we're having these dialogues and learn from each other too, right? So we need to be a lot more intersectional, I think is the answer. <laughs> right, for sure. I, um, so this, you know, to slightly take us like off track a little bit, I know that a lot of like your scholarship, you've also looked at the idea of eugenics and neo-eugenics. So I'd just like to know as what this term means and how it applies to a lot of the topics that we've been speaking about as well. Yes, I think it affects and it highlights how the past is not over, unfortunately, right? Because when we look at eugenics policies, for example, in Canada, we had eugenics policies until the 60s and 70s, where we took very, you know, active uh, steps in terms of policies and practices that prevented people with disabilities from being part of the community, having families, relationships, having sex, reproduction. Um, I think the sad part is that when we look at eugenics, right? So looking at the current practices that continue to achieve the same thing, they're still very much present. So I spoke with participants, like I said, women who are on birth control without their knowledge or people who don't have privacy in their personal spaces to have those relationships. I think we have lots of examples now that demonstrate that as a society, we still want discourage very often people from even considering the idea of being a parent. Um, I mean, if we look, for example, at the number of people with intellectual disabilities who lose custody of their children, it's very high. People, I mean, I've known people with intellectual disabilities who lost, lost custody of their children, even at the hospital right after birth, right? And sometimes because of concerns around their capacity, in quotes, of being good parents from the first place. People, for example, parents who got judged much more harshly even, right? For example, I remember this um, couple, they left their kid outside in the yard for two seconds because they had to go back and get the, their keys. A neighbor saw it and reported to child services. I mean, if it was a non-disabled family, just leaving their kids for two minutes while they pick up the keys, I think that the answer would have been much differently, you know? So this concept of neogenics, I think what I like about it is that it highlights the structural ways, the systematic and systemic ways that we're still preventing people from having this part of life. No wonder when we look at the data, not a lot of people are forming families, not a lot of people are having a sexual life, not a lot of people are having children. So this is not by coincidence, right? We need to look at what is happening behind the scenes here. I think the last thing I'll highlight to you is I think what I like about the term neogenics is that it highlights how now we kind of frame it as a benevolent, in quotes, action. So we're not just saying people, you shouldn't have the right to, you know, be a parent, but we're almost like selling by, you know, you don't want to have that headache, right? Like children are too much work. Let's just put you on birth control and it's going to be great for you. So I think that's the danger of it too, like of eugenics, is that sometimes it's 
put across as a benevolent, you're doing a good thing for people. And, and then it, it, it changes, right, how we think about it, because then you're not, you know, disconsidering people's rights, but you're just doing something good for them, apparently. And I think that's the danger of neogenics as well. It, it's more covert and it's framed in a lens of like, it's good for people. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it gives us something to think about, right, as to, you know, how things have been framed and how you have a lot of, I think, you know, if you have, you know, a lot of like ableism sort of, you know, like like built into the structure itself, it's, it's quite hard. You know, I think it like translates into you know, like laws and policies as well, which makes it much harder, right? Like as we've, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah no, exactly. And, you know, and, and what is also interesting, if we think through an intersectional lens here, other social groups that are considered to be, in quotes, undesirable, right, have experienced very similar processes, right? Even today, like we have, for example, in U.S. prisons uh, programs where prisoners are offered, you know, sterilization in exchange for fewer years in prison, right? Uh, I mean, that's one way that we're, again, curtailing people's reproductive rights, right? Uh, and selling it, you know, you know in very weird ways. Uh, or even in Canada, we have women, indigenous women in Canada that have come out and are suing provincial governments here, right? Um, because they were sterilized, in, uh, you know, without consent or coerced into sterilization. And these are not things that have happened in the 70s, but that have happened in the last decade. Right. So, I mean, if you look at it, we're talking about eugenics in a way that really prevents multiple kinds of social groups that are seen as less human, right, or less worth of being around us here in a, a society and cutting that, that those rights. And at the same time, we're, you know, really encouraging particular families and particular growth social groups like white people and heterosexual people to reproduce, to have families, right? So those practices continue to be alive even today, which is really scary. It is, it is, it is, a, it is scary. And, you know, but I think, again, you know, I think as long as we have this awareness and we are sort of moving towards the awareness, I think, you know, that's important. And that is a micro step towards change. But still, you know, I think it is something, right? And yeah, I think, you know, I'd just like to know, right, you know, like over the course of your research, if you had any such notable findings or anecdotes or any of your own, you know, ideas or conceptions of like this area itself, you know, has been, you know, like challenged in any way. I just think um, I'd like to know a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think one of the interesting findings that I had, so I interviewed both women and men with intellectual disabilities. And what I learned from some of the participants is that they had attended what they call women and men's groups, right? So one of the things that stood out to me a lot was that one, that there's assumption that you're either woman or men, and that's, you know, and that you're different and that you should learn different things. So it reproduces already ideas about gender that are very, you know, particular, right? That women should learn particular things and men certain things. And even when I asked them about the content of these classes, like, or these courses, women talked about learning how to knit or how to cook. Uh, or, you know, that they should approach men, that they're vulnerable. And men were learning how to budget. They were learning other active kind of activities. To me, it's very interesting because it kind of reproduces gender inequality, right? Women are learning very traditional kind of ways of being women. And the ways they talk about it was a lot of times like the lens of being a good man or a good woman, right? So they said that to be a good man, you need to do this and this and this. They got a very specific formula of what it means. So, for example, for some of the men that I talked to, being a good man, in quotes, meant never touching your girlfriend, 
sexually at all, right? Even for couples that I talked to who had been together for like 10 years, they still don't touch each other sexually because they learned that that's not appropriate in, to be a man and a good woman. I spoke with couples that even though they have been together for more than five years, they still don't spend the night together, right? They're still living separately with their families. Um, they are not allowed to call each other after 7 p.m. Uh, they only see each other in person like twice or three times a week. And in those spaces where they finally meet, it's not allowed to kiss. It's not allowed to hold hands. They got punished for doing such things. Very, I mean, harmless forms of expression, if you think about it. I mean, we see people holding hands on the streets, you know, and doing much more than that these days. So it, what I see, unfortunately, is that sometimes people are learning about gender uh, through, again, very limited menu of options, right? That being a good woman is a one thing and you should just strive to be this thing, right? And, and if you cannot perform that, you're going to get punished. And that's what they talk about a lot of times, too. They talked about this fear of getting in trouble, especially the men. They had a genuine fear that it would perform masculinity, perform manhood in a way that was wrong, and they would get punished by it. Some people were indeed punished, right, for failing, in quotes, to be that man that they learned that it should be. We all know that there is no single way of being a woman or a man, right? There are multiple ways. That's what feminism shows to us, that there are multiple ways of being a feminist or being a woman. Um, but that's not what people are learning, unfortunately. Right, definitely. And, you know, I think it, it speaks a lot about the social structures that we have and how they're so sort of embedded, right, that now I think okay. a lot of, you know, opinions or ideologies sort of become, you know, um, understood to be either right or wrong. And, you know, we rarely see that there is a gray area, you know, I think in that sense. Um, I just like along those lines, right, you know, if, if say, if I'm, you know, a person who's been living in, you know, in like a you know, in like a conservative, you know, like sort of a background, right, where I've always been told these things and where I realize that I am a queer person, right, then, you know, um, how exactly, you know, do they navigate that conflict, you know, and like, what does, you know, like that look like, right, like, isn't it, you know, like a confusing journey and like, how exactly, like, might one go about it? Exactly, you might never be able to explore that part of your identity, right, uh, or you might do it in secret, uh, so, you know, I spoke with participants that, uh, you know, are dating people or having sex, but they have to do it in secret, right? Like uh, one of my participants, I remember like as soon as, you know, the support worker left the room doing the interview, she was whispering to me, like, I'm dating someone, but don't tell anyone, right? Like it's unfortunate because then when we talk about a lot about vulnerability, right? Again, this is another example that I think we're placing people into a vulnerable position because we're pushing people into secrecy. We're pushing people into doing things alone in secret because that's the only way that they'll have access to those opportunities. And that puts people into danger too because they might be you know, putting themselves in a risky position. I spoke with a couple of men, for example, who the only private, it's very interesting, the only private space that they have to have sex or to have hookups is in public places like parks. Like that's the only place where they actually have privacy. Because where they live, they don't have space for privacy. Where they go to do activities with other people with disabilities, they don't have privacy. So the only place they go to is the park. And again, look at this. We're pushing people into doing things in public spaces where they can easily land into trouble with the police, right? So here's a perfect example of how we're making people more vulnerable into getting to trouble, into you know, having lifelong consequences potentially. 
right? So we need to change those things. Like we should not be pushing people into secrecy to have the lives that they want. We should be supporting people and making sure that they're, they have a, they see us as a resource, as a, as a way of supporting them to get what they need, right? Definitely, right? And I think, you know, to have an understanding of diversity and to be able to appreciate that, I think is sort of the first step towards really building a healthy society, right? I feel like the more we try to, you know, marginalize and act like, you know, oh, it doesn't exist. I think it's just, you know, suppressing a lot of, you know, of like the real society out there. And I think it's, it's pretty unfortunate in that sense, uh, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, so, you know, like a final sort of question I have is that, you know, I think like sociology as a field of study, I think is is very interesting because, you know, it's, it's different from the natural sciences, right? In the sense that you're studying actual human beings, you know, and I think in that sense, usually one's own ideas or, you know, like biases, you know, like if I may say so, is, you know, often we cannot completely remove or eliminate that. So I think I just like to know as to whether you have ever felt that your, you know, um, identity or experiences or background has ever influenced the course of your research work, either in terms of your access to resources or form of narration in any way and, you know, and like the role that you play in like your research work as well. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it comes from, you know, my everyday life, right? Uh, this research topic, it was really around having a family member that I really wanted to support and I just didn't know how to. So it's like, let me do research on this, <laughs> you know? Uh, and it started in my undergraduate and it has just grown so much. And also through community partnerships, right? Working with people with lived experiences in, in the community too, who have been extremely generous and kind with me, right? To share their points of view, to share their priorities, share what they are experiencing. So I think that collaborative approach for me is extremely important, right? I consider myself a community-based researcher. And I think to me, uh, our scholarship becomes rich when we listen to people with lived experiences and not just listen, um, but actually engage and collaborate with and give them credit for their work, for their contributions too. Uh, so I think that makes a big difference. And I think I really, really like sociology because it, it gives me the vocabulary to understand my own personal experiences. Like I didn't click, you know, I didn't understand that I was not alone um, growing up first generation in a working class family back in Brazil, right? Uh, it didn't click until my first year, first, you know, level sociology course, when I was, I finally was given a language to understand my experiences and speak about it from that structural lens. Right. And intersectionality, I never heard that term until I went to university. And finally, it's like, wow, there is a term that explains how I feel as a queer person of color. <laughs> you know, like all those things were extremely life changing. And I think that's what I like about sociology. Like it really was life changing as a queer person. I think it saved my life in many ways, too, because it allowed me to see myself differently and engage with my participants. My participants are always challenging me to see things differently as well, right? And to um, learn, even in terms of my own sexuality, right? And my own ways of thinking and being comfortable talking about sexuality and sexual life. Like it wasn't until I really started doing this project that I finally felt comfortable speaking about it, right? Like it's, we have so much discomfort in talking about intimate lives with other people, right? Uh, it's always the secrecy or very few people in your life that you can talk about it or ask questions. And now here I am, like, I want to be comfortable. I want to create a space for my participants where it feels non-judgmental, 
right? And part of that is for me to do my homework and feel comfortable myself to talk about it, to listen about it with not, not in a position of judgment, but a position of like, yeah, please tell me more about this. I would love to hear more about it. How do you go about it? How to, you know, what are some of the challenges here? That, and I, and I think that participants sense that, right? Uh, one of my favorite moments I'll end here is um, one participant, this young woman with intellectual disability, we had this interview, it went really well. And then she comes back after a few minutes with this handwritten letter, like saying, thank you. Like you made me feel comfortable for the first time talking about this. And that to me was like that moment that just brought like tears you know, into my eyes because it's like, I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so glad that you know I was able to create a space that you felt safe and comfortable talking about it. We cannot take for granted this moments, right? Like for a lot of my participants, that was their first time talking openly about this and talking openly with someone that didn't judge them, that didn't make it negative, but that genuinely wanted to understand how they see the world. To me, that makes my day and will continue to make my day no matter how many times I do this. Right, absolutely. And you know, I think I could especially connect to the part where you said that, you know, sociology as a subject sort of gives you a vocabulary to really understand yourself because you know I think even though I've just done like my bachelor's degree I realize that you know a lot of these stuff that like these scholars are saying right like it just somehow clicks you know and you're like oh I can like I just get that you know yeah. and uh, yeah and I think you know that's something really powerful that, that you know that sociology does and I think it also helps me connect to you know all of you know like these scholars I've been speaking to right because you know you, like you could like any you know like area or like part of the world but you know sociology mm -hmm. sort of gives you that language you know speak to them because of a shared interest of human beings and like what we as human beings do and what mm -hmm. we are like uh, so yeah I think that's about it from my end it was a pleasure speaking to you Alan today so thank you for taking out the time and thank you so much. You're an amazing like person to host a podcast. Like yeah. you make your guests so comfortable and you ask amazing questions. So thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm delighted to hear that. <laughs> Fantastic. All right then. So thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, then please be sure to hit subscribe. Apart from Anchor, you can catch us on a number of other hosting platforms as well. And be sure to follow the handle ResearchDown on Twitter and on Instagram to stay tuned for further updates.